0: I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. My dad lived to be 89, and I've come to realize after reflecting back on his life and my many years with him that he probably never could smell or taste much of anything. One of our family's favorite stories hinges on a time when he went to the refrigerator and he found two small containers of yogurt, one strawberry, the other blueberry, and he enjoyed them, apparently. Uh, But about a week later, mom started to inquire, who ate the finger paint? You see, she had this habit of taking uh, old containers and recycling them. And she had put these old yogurt containers to good use, a new use for finger paint. Well, later, dad said he thought the yogurt tasted slightly off. He was a little mystified that the yogurt in the strawberry container was a bright yellow color and the blueberry was red. But it didn't dissuade him from eating it. Uh, In all the years I knew him, I never remember that he ever exhibited any kind of nuanced reaction to foods or smells. And I think it's coming together for me. I don't think Dad could taste or smell well at all. I think he was likely taste blind, if you've heard that term. Have you known anybody like this? In retrospect, I feel terrible for him. I feel really sorry that he seems to have missed out on so many of life's great pleasures In this area, and in the course of the recent pandemic, uh, as thousands upon thousands have experienced the loss of taste and smell, more and more people are able to sympathize with somebody like my dad who for a lifetime was deprived of a a certain spectrum of happiness and joy. Well, our next guest on Constant Wonder has all the credentials needed to help us explore this topic. Dr. Danielle Reed is Associate Director of the Monell Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia, and she serves also on the leadership team of the Global Consortium for Chemosensory Research. She's going to be able to connect some of these dots for us between the strange human experiences of either losing olfactory and gustatory senses or maybe just being born without the full array of capability to smell and taste things. Dr. Danielle Reed, welcome to Constant Wonder.
1: Hi, it's really great to be here. And I was really touched by your story, which, of course, has some funny elements to it. But, you know, I think underlying you really honed in on some of the sadness of not being able to really appreciate some of the goodness that the world has to offer when you can't taste or smell.
0: Yeah, you know, I have actually, subsequent to my dad's passing, I've read more about this and found out that a depression can really set in for people who lose their sense of taste and smell in, in a really big way.
1: Yes, absolutely. So one of the things we've learned um, in my research is is that the loss of the sense of smell is actually very, very common, but oftentimes people think they've lost their sense of taste because these two senses are very strongly tied together And so one of the things we like to do in the laboratory is we have people, of course, smell things to get a sense of whether they've lost their sense of smell. But then we also put things like sweet sugar and salt on the tongue to see if people get the salty or sweetness out of those things. And what we learn from this is typically, at least up until the times of COVID, most of the loss is just with the sense of smell. And you know, COVID, one of the unusual things about COVID is it actually wipes out both the sense of of taste on the tongue and the sense of smell.
0: Yeah, and when you say wipes out, does that mean forever or is this a temporary or is it permanent in some cases?
1: Yeah, so that is obviously the most important question that a lot of people are facing right now. So what we're learning is this about three quarters of people their sense of taste and smell comes back and it's just fine and it takes maybe a week or two or maybe just maybe a month. And they seem to get back to where they were and they're completely fine. But for the other 25, 20, 25% of people, things seem to either be moving really slowly so they're getting a bit better or some people are actually finding that things they can taste and smell but things don't taste like they used to you know you can imagine what it must be like to you know to smell something uh you know the beauty of an orange or a lemon and have it not smell exactly right and this is very unnerving for people and and can be very um really take a lot of the shine off of of eating when things don't smell like they should
0: well, I'm guessing we might not be far enough along just in terms of elapsed time to know about recovery, but still, the longer something persists, the the less hope there seems to be of it re- returning.
1: Yes, we're we're looking at this as like pe- we're saying that people have sustained loss. So, you know, obviously we've only been doing this new for everybody, including the scientists, but we've only been doing this since March of 2020. So, you know, it's a little bit too early to say permanent loss. So what we're saying is it's a sustained loss that people are not seemingly getting better. But, you know, obviously we're very hopeful that at least some of these folks will eventually reclaim at least some of their sense of taste and smell.
0: Now, I mentioned just a moment ago that you're on the leadership team for the GCCR. That's the Global Consortium for Chemosensory Research. And that's a new thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's a brand new thing. Um, it just started actually. Um, a lot of scientists right at the very early stages of COVID, um, were locked out of their laboratories. So you can imagine all these scientists are sitting at home and not much to do, and 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 uh, watching the whole COVID thing and then there, the very initial reports that people were losing their sense of taste and smell and of course scientists who study this type of thing were pretty skeptical because it seemed like an extreme claim and so there was this explosion of scientists emailing each other and talking on the phone and the sort of the the the, the to cut to the chase what happened is that this whole organization formed essentially almost overnight to try to study this problem. And it was really beautiful because people came together globally. So we have members all over the world, about 600 members in something like 55 countries. There's really a a new thing for me and one that's been really rewarding.
0: And the focus of this group, has it been specific to the response to COVID?
1: Yes, we came together to really answer some of the key questions for COVID. But of course, now that scientists are together, working together, then they have many more questions that they want to answer. And so I think that this is going to be something where we're going to be transitioning to study um, recovery. Obviously, that's a very important topic of COVID, smell and loss, taste loss recovery. But then we're going to be um, studying things more worldwide. So for instance, our people across the world differ in their sense of taste and smell. And believe it or not, that's not as well studied as you might. Thanks.
0: Now, where are you in your research interest here relative to COVID and the loss of smell and or taste? Are are you more or better equipped to study uh, the causal side of things, or are you also involved in the uh, potential therapeutic side of things?
1: Yeah, I have a foot in both camps, so I'm really interested in how it happens, you know, exactly what happens inside the nose or on the tongue that causes us to lose these cells? So that's a really interesting question to me, like the mechanism of what's happening. And then of course, we wanna figure out how to get people better. And so I've also been working a lot trying to understand what, there, if, what kind of therapies might be effective and how can we can think creatively about trying to waken up these uh, missing cells and try to get new cells born and get people recovered.
0: You're talking about these cells and this already opens up a door of understanding for me because the location of these cells are you talking about the receptor cells that are in the nose or in the tongue or is this uh, also a matter of because I had thought p- potentially this virus could change the interpretive functions deep in the brain that that interpret smells.
1: Yes, so you you really hit on the two competing ideas here. One is that the cells in the nose and tongue are have died or not working correctly so that the signal has no chance of getting to the brain. And then the other idea is that somehow the brain is infected with the virus and doesn't interpret this information correctly. And the first look that we've had at the cells in the nose uh, suggests that the cells in the nose are actually What's happening is that they have these beautiful structures on them called cilia, and they look kind of like seaweed floating in the, in the ocean or the, the sort of long, slender strands. And one of the first things that happens when these cells um, are uh, the cells become infected with COVID or the nearby cells get infected with COVID, is that these cilia drop off. and it's like um, and then the cells seem to die. And so there's no way for the signal to start really because those cells that are the first relay point for the sense of smell are gone. And these cells repopulate and they get reborn and come back, but they seem to do so very, very slowly, or of course some people maybe not at all.
0: If they repopulate, are they regenerated from existing cells that are on their way out? Or is there something in our genetic makeup where we're capable of just, uh, I, I don't know where the new cells would come from, actually.
1: Right, so there's a constant, the, the cells in our nose actually turn over very rapidly in, our, in a healthy person. And so there's a, com, there's a constant flow of uh, really immature cells, stem cells that grow into or differentiate or become the working olfactory receptor neurons. And that's something that happens in a healthy person all the time, no problem. Um, But one of the problems with COVID is that these sort of baby cells, if you will, or these immature cells, if they have any hint of being infected with the virus, tend to get eaten by some of the immune cells. And so it's like the, the system's trying to regenerate, but it's just not very successful because it's being sort of thwarted by the immune system.
0: Now, I understand that you and colleagues have tried to understand this better by gathering data by way of survey, and there is some kind of at-home smell test that that you've been putting out. What, what's that about?
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we've developed, so our first thought, you know, you have to remember that we're a bunch of scientists, and so we just love data. And so our first thought was to do a very comprehensive at-home test so people would get three things that have an odor and four things that have a taste. And we devised this at-home test, which is very comprehensive, but as you can imagine, not everybody loves to collect data as much as scientists love to have data. So we also made a much shorter test, and that really relies on our morning beverage. So everybody's a little different in what they like to drink in the morning. Some people like to have herbal tea that has the beautiful smell. I like a nice apple and cinnamon tea myself. And so the idea is we use that opportunity of smelling our morning beverage to um, to just check in with ourselves about our sense of smell because you might imagine just like your father, he might not have really known or paid attention or to the sense of smell. So this is an opportunity for people in a structured scientific way, but to use that everyday experience to answer questions about how they're doing that day with their sense of smell.
0: Is this survey something that's being administered by the Monell Center or is this from the, the GCCR? Who's doing it?
1: This is the GCCR. So this is the scientists, the sort of worldwide scientists. We've actually translated this a survey into many different languages, and people are doing it worldwide. So it's a, it's a product of the GCCR.
0: You're actively soliciting participants right now?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We'd be happy to put, if you have a show notes, we'd be happy to put sure. the link in there so people can participate. Oh, that'd
0: be great. Uh, now, I, I want to ask a little bit more about uh, some aspects of COVID 19 smell and taste loss. I'm really interested to know. If it hits the population the same way everywhere, or if there are points of differentiation, you know, a male, female, based on demographics, uh, race, race, ethnicity, do people respond in different numbers in different ways?
1: Yes. So that is a really excellent question. And the answer is a little bit. So it seems like women are a little bit more affected than men and it seems like younger people might be a little bit more affected than older people. Um, But these differences are not large. And actually, one of the things we've learned is is that when we measure smell loss more uh, better, you know, by actually doing laboratory-based tests, up close to 70 or 80 percent of people have smell loss who have COVID Nineteen, And so one of the things that we wonder is whether this is not maybe a nearly universal syndrome for COVID-19 if we measure well. Now in terms of like people across the world or globally, um, one of the, the problems is, is that these are questions that are not often asked in some countries. So for instance, in the early time of the virus, there was not a lot of reports of this, but predominantly because physicians weren't, didn't know enough to really ask about it. And so later, when people learned that they needed to ask, it seems like the rates worldwide are pretty comparable.
0: And another burning question for me has to do with, is this loss of, of taste or smell, is, is it generally uh, total or are there different gradients? Do some people lose a little bit of, of, of that capacity and others a lot?
1: yeah so the thing that was so shocking about this to the scientists is that the loss for many people is total and it's a very striking people go to bed uh fine and they wake up the next morning and they can't smell or taste a thing now that's not to say that some people are not don't have the sort of shades of gray and and in anywhere in between but for the majority of people the loss is really striking and you can imagine the thing that was really is really disconcerting for people is if we're all used to losing our sense of smell and taste when we have a cold because our nose is blocked and so we can't sniff so the fact we can't smell is seems logical. But the thing that was so odd and is so odd about COVID is is that people often have complete what we call nasal patency, which just means they can breathe and sniff through their nose just fine, and yet they can't smell. And this is an extremely unnerving experience for people.
0: So no congestion, no stuffed nose, and and yet the symptom presents itself sometimes overnight.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh,
0: Is this loss in any way uh, a tool for diagnosis?
1: Oh, uh, yes, that's an excellent question. Actually, um, for about 10 to 15, and maybe even as high as 20 or 25% of people, loss of taste and smell is the first symptom that they notice who are later go on to be diagnosed with COVID-19. And so one of the things we've been working on is giving people a smell test, just a quick one, you know, that's uh, quick and easy to do and a little bit fun to do as a way to screen people just like people screen their temp- their temperature when they go into a building. And so we've been thinking a lot about um, how we can deploy these tests in places of worship or, um, you know, other types of events to screen people for COVID.
0: Now, Dr. Danielle Reed, we've been talking COVID, COVID, COVID now, and yet uh, my father's story, that happened well before the pandemic. He's been gone for a few years now. And and so uh, I am very interested in, in what your research has been about before COVID. We're going to get into that in just a moment here on the show after a short break. I understand that you've got a lot to say about the potential. Genetic inheritance that could lead to somebody being taste blind. And, and, we're, and I also want to define that term better with you. So uh, stay tuned and, and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Constant Wonder. It's great to be with you. I'm Marcus Smith. And it's great to be with Dr. Danielle Reed, Associate Director of the Monell Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia. Uh, dr. Reed we've we've finished now talking about covid for the most part but I understand that your initial interest here and, and your area of expertise ties in this idea of being taste blind or having compromised sense of smell or taste it ties in with just our genetic inheritance
1: yes absolutely so this whole this whole sort of line of study got started in a laboratory in DuPont in um the 1930s, and this fellow called Arthur Fox was synthesizing a chemical that he needed to make some dyes. And he had one of those moments, I don't know, maybe if you're a cook or people in your life cook, but we've all had those moments where we're transferring a powder from a cup into a bowl, and we're trying to tap it into the bowl, and then all of a sudden it goes poof, you know, it all flops out at once and goes in the air. And that happened in the lab, and Arthur Fox actually couldn't perceive or taste the chemical at all, but the fellow next door to him or the next bench over found it to be insanely bitter. And they both just looked at each other like, how can this be that um, one, that Arthur Fox couldn't taste it and yet the other fellow could? And they, there was really no explanation for that because they both could taste other things just fine. Arthur Fox could taste other things. And so this, this, this taste loss seemed pretty selective For just this one thing, which was odd, and so you know that he was thinking about it, and he was thinking, well, maybe it's the case that all of the different chemicals that we taste in our food, um, maybe there's different receptors for them that you know that respond in different ways, and maybe this receptor for this particular chemical in me is just broken, and you know that is exactly his idea of it. Um, he had no idea about DNA or proteins or whatever, but his, his fundamental idea about it was exactly correct. It turns out that we have, um, just like some people are colorblind, um, there are people who are taste blind to very specific things. And this has a lot of implications for what people can taste and what they like to eat.
0: Yeah, I would think so. I mean, the idea that any of this would be missing from our palette of experiences is is a little alarming to me. I like to think of myself. I think I don't know how many people people are like this, but I think of myself as I can taste anything and and my taste is going to be, you know, authoritative. It's it's going to if 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 something is really good food, I'm going to say that's really good food and I'm going to be able to tell you why. But there are going to be people who are mystified about the great interest in say foodies and and foodie publications and programming? Why would somebody watch hours and hours of um, uh, programming content on TV or in podcasts or read books about taste? I would imagine there's some people who are just scratching their head and just don't get it.
1: Yes, absolutely. So there are people that have these very selective uh, losses so that they can't taste very particular things and so you can imagine those kind of conversations just let's just take brussels sprouts as a prime example so for instance i am not able to taste the bitterness of brussels sprouts you know i was born that way and when people used to talk to me about brussels sprouts being bitter i was just like i Don't even understand what you're talking about. (laughs) Whereas other people just looking at me, like, how can you not taste it? They're extremely bitter. And so then you can imagine that there are people that have these selective losses. And then there are people, maybe like your father, who either lose their sense of taste and smell um, through some event, you know, they've injured, they have a head injury, or they have gotten a severe virus or people, some people are actually born without a sense of smell. That's the most common. And there are people born without a sense of taste too, but that's less common. And then of course it takes them a while to piece together their comparing their experience with others to really even learn that they don't have it, what it is to have a sense of taste or smell and learn about that.
0: Can you give us some kind of a sense for how many people uh, are we talking about? 0.1% 0.1% of the population at large might be born without a sense of smell or 0.00? Is it a very small fraction or a considerable fraction? There's,
1: there's very few people that are born without a sense of, that are born without a sense of smell, probably on the order of about 0.5%, maybe 0.3% of people. So this is actually quite uncommon, but what is very, very common is for people to have a head injury and that will um, either permanently or near permanently um, reduce your sense of smell or eliminate it. And that's because the nerve that travels between the nose and the brain, these nerves are very soft and they go through a, this hard bone. that basically looks like a colander like you'd rinse vegetables in. And when you when you have a, when your head is um, hit really hard, those very soft nerves come against that very hard bone and they're often sliced or um, sheared off so that the nose and the brain no longer connect appropriately. And that type of head trauma is very common. So one of the ways you can screen for having too much you know, in a football practice and, and that, that type of activity is to screen at the sense of smell to make sure that that, that connection is still strong.
0: Do you know of anybody in the sports world who's already uh, aware of this so that when there's been a head injury that they, they look for, the, for that in particular?
1: I don't know the names of any individual people, but certainly we get, we get um, letters all the time from athletes who have lost their sense of smell through head trauma. And of course, they're really curious about whether how the nerves can the nerves regrow and, and find the correct place in the brain and whether they can revive their sense of smell.
0: Yeah, you know, there's been so much talk about concussions on the football field. And uh, those discussions tend to focus on uh, longevity. You know, is, is somebody going to have a shortened life? You know, will the brain have uh, you know problems earlier in life, dementia, that sort of thing? Uh, I haven't heard anybody talking about, well, your quality of life could go down today with a head injury from a loss of sense, or, uh, sense of taste or smell.
1: Yes, I mean, the sense of smell is really, I like to think of it as a canary in the cold mine when it comes to head injury. And so one of the things that I would be—I would love to see is for our sense of smell, just a quick test in the doctor's office as part of our everyday type of physical exam. I think that would really help us understand a lot better to answer a lot of the questions that we have. I think it'd be, you know, fun thing to do while you're waiting for the doctor to show up in your in your room as you've just had a quick smell test. I think that sounds like a little bit of fun and really good really help, would help get us a lot of good data.
0: Yeah. I want you to take us to Ohio to the Twin Days Festival in Twinsburg, <laughs> Ohio. Uh, have you been there or sent people there? What's going on there?
1: Yeah, so the twins' day—I call it—it's a large country fair, and everybody that goes there is a twin, and so it's go, it's held every year in the first uh, weekend of August, and um, it's just a ton of fun, kids little kids start to go when they're really tiny their parents bring them the twins and then they come every year and a lot of times they meet their husband or wife and fall in love and get married and come back and it's just a beautiful it's a really beautiful family event for the twins and of course as a geneticist we love twins because it gives us a chance to measure people and to see if the twins, for things like their sense of smell and taste, are more similar. There's two kinds of twins. There's identical twins, and then there's uh, what we call fraternal twins that are less genetically similar. So we like to compare those two types of twins to see if the things that we care about, taste and smell are genetically determined.
0: And do you find any surprising information from the Twins Festival?
1: Yes, you know, one of the things that was surprising to me is as we asked sort of basic questions like how salty is it or how bitter is it or how what does this smell like? And those things are more genetically determined for sure. But the big surprise is when we ask people like, how much do you like this? How much do you like this very sweet thing that we've given you? Um, and when people are answering that question, there's a lot of genetic trait. There's a lot of genetic loading for that trait too. So that was a big surprise to us. You know, we have this idea of people having sweet tooth, and that's kind of a fun idea. And people talk about this person as a sweet tooth or whatever. But it, there seems to be a real genetic or scientific basis for that.
0: Is it true that more people complain about food being too sweet than not sweet enough?
1: Yes, yes, we actually, it was very funny. It was last winter, actually. You know, I was home and I was um, analyzing data just to look at things for fun. And I was looking at all of these Amazon food reviews and I was interested in learning more about bitterness, but what I kept stumbling across was that people were really talking about sweetness in these food reviews. And I was like, well, you know, what are th- what are they saying? And as I was analyzing the data more and more, and again just for fun, it seemed, it, it seemed like people were complaining about ten times more that the foods like you know cookies and um, other kinds of that kind of bag and box types of food were too sweet. And I thought that was so interesting, you know, because. I imagine if you're a food manufacturer, you try to sweeten things so that everybody will like it. But it seems clear that many people are just finding food to be way too sweet. And I thought that was interesting.
0: You just mentioned some literature about food. And I'm just wondering if that's a source of data for you at all in, in your expertise. Do you, do you read what uh, food writers are, are putting out there? Does that Does that help you at all?
1: Yes, absolutely. One of the things is that I like to say is you don't know what you don't know. And when people write about things and write about their experience, it gives scientists a really good uh, what we, like, way to generate hypotheses. So reading what people write about food, kind of let, we let go of our own ideas as scientists and we just listen to what people have to say. So this is a really good source of data and information for us.
0: Well, I'm very interested in how people try to produce their own lives. They try to uh, tailor, uh, have custom-made experiences, you know. And I'm wondering if, if anything out of the science of genetics might help people to understand, oh, I'm this type of a taster. I'm this type of a smeller. And so I could probably kind of program my life that when I go shopping, I, I should get these kinds of foods but not those kinds of – you know what I mean? Is, is there a way to, to use the science – to help people on a daily basis uh, pursue their own quality of life in very almost idiosyncratic ways.
1: You know, I think that that there is um, going to be a place for this sort of customizing our own taste experience. But I like to think of the research taking us to a place more of compassion for each other. So we've all been, at least many of us are parents and many of us have kids. And I am a non-taster of this this bitterness, it's in uh, Brussels sprouts, but my children both can taste it because they inherited one copy of that gene from their father. So to my children, the cruciferous vegetables like Brussels sprouts taste bitter, right. And so as a mother, I'm trying to get them to eat something that to me is delicious. Um, I love I love all the cruciferous vegetables, but to them is bitter. And so I think there's a place for us to sort of take a minute and pause when we're trying to get, you know, kids or family members to try something or eat something for us to just to understand that like the basic experience of food is very different from people. And so I think that's one thing that we're learning is just to be a little a little kinder if you will when we're trying to understand why certain people won't eat certain things.
0: Now I've saved something scandalous for the very end here. Do you really have four freezers packed with human spit?
1: <laughs> Indeed, I do. Yes, I have <laughs> freezers full of spit. Yep. How did that spit. happen? You got to tell
0: us how that happened.
1: <laughs> well, we, back in the old times, we used to extract DNA from blood and um, you can imagine that that's hard on the people giving us blood and it's hard on us because we have to handle it in a special way and it turns out that basically i always like to think of spit as liquid dna so there's a lot of dna in spit and it's very easy to collect at least for most people and so it's a way that we can look at your inborn genotype all of your your genetic code in a way that's easy for us and easy for the subjects. But the bottom line is that I do have a four freezers full of spit and uh, that is quite, quite something to look at. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Danielle Reed, it's been a pleasure to learn from you today and have a chance to explore this topic. And I hope that uh, over the course of coming years that you're able to answer some questions about uh, our recovery from COVID and I really like what you had to say about our more, more compassionate uh, you know, approach to, to people who have different capacities to taste and to experience life through smell and taste. That's very important, I think. So thank you very much. It's a pleasure to meet you.
1: Me too. It was really an honor to be with you today.
0: Dr. Danielle Reed, Associate Director of the Monell Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia and on the leadership team of the Global Consortium for Chemosensory Research. If COVID can mess with your sense of smell and taste as bad as it does, and we've all heard some alarming stories on that front, just imagine with me for a moment what might happen if some germ or parasite or virus or bacterium could co-opt other senses, maybe make you see things that aren't there or feel things that aren't real or hear voices perhaps – Without being sure of our senses, how do we separate our imagination from what's real out in the world? The subjectivity of all of this, it can be a bit disturbing when you think about it too hard. But this can also be a lot of fun, as we're about to see when we come back after a short break here on Constant Wonder. We're going to explore the world of people who have synesthesia. That is to say a condition that mixes up the senses a bit. You can maybe hear color or see a sound. Synesthesia, when we return, stay with us. I'm Marcus Smith, you're listening to Constant Wonder. Our next guest on the show has always known that her voice is purple. It never even occurred to her that other people don't see sound this way. She has synesthesia. Now, that is not a disease. It's a neurological condition, apparently, and a pretty cool one in some ways. Annie Dickinson, a musician, a composer, and singer, and at the time I had a chance to speak with her, she was a high school senior. I understand she went on to study at the prestigious Berkeley School of Music in Boston. I want you to hear part of our conversation, which began with her story about how she first realized that she was different from other people.
2: Looking back, I would have expected it to be earlier, but it actually didn't happen until my freshman year of high school. I'm a senior now, so it was only four years ago. Um, I walked into my freshman year singing test. We have to take a singing test for our choir placement. And after I finished the test, uh, my choir director turned to me and said, uh, what color would you describe your voice as? And without missing a beat, I answered purple because Obviously, what other color would my voice be? It's definitely purple. And she kind of gave me this weird look and was like, what do you mean purple? I was expecting, like, a, a what tone is your voice? Is it bright or rich or full? And I had answered purple. <laughs> and so I went home. I was like, Mom, Dad, is my voice not purple? And they were like, what? So that that's when I began to think, hey, maybe something's a little different here. <laughs>
0: And and, and where did you take it from there? Because if you've had this experience, if it becomes the kind of thing where you're conscious now of it, you're absolutely aware that this is a little bit offbeat for most people, did you immediately start investigating or researching
2: I did, so I kind of Googled around a bit. Uh, I was like, wait, do I have like a brain tumor or something, is something very wrong? And it turned out that nothing was wrong, just that there's a condition with this name. And once we found out about it, we went to a, um, I think it was a neurologist who was able to do some testing and, and diagnosed me with synesthesia.
0: Oh, okay, now um, you started looking into it by Googling it. Is that, did I hear you right? I did. Yeah? Uh, I know it's been four years back, but can you even remember the search terms? I mean, you sit down at your computer and what do you do? You type in, why am I hearing purple? (laughs)
2: It was like voice is color or something. I don't don't really remember. But it was just something so weird and bizarre that reading it back to anyone else probably would have sounded very strange.
0: Did you think it was a problem? You, you said maybe a brain tumor, clearly, but at some point, you must have just said, no, other people are reporting this, too. Uh, at some point, you had to kind of categorize yourself as a certain type of person.
2: Yeah. Yeah. At first, it was it was kind of scary because I, I didn't know what it was. But after I figured out that, you know, it's just a, a trait, that's not really anything problematic, um, I, I definitely, there was a big wave of relief that came with that.
0: Well, I think what we could do now is, is we earlier, just a, a few minutes ago, we rolled a little bit of our theme music for our show, Constant Wonder, and we're going to roll a little of that again. I don't know if you need 15 or 20 seconds or so. I'll give you 20 <laughs> seconds worth. And I just want you to listen to it and then react to us, uh, it for us. Tell us what you're hearing. Here, here's the clip. Well, that actually wasn't our theme music, but that's okay. There's a little pieces of music. What what did you hear? A color?
2: <laughs> yeah. Um. So a lot of that, I was seeing a lot of dark blue, kind of swirling around in the background um, with the piano, which created kind of a, a dark green little dots in my field of vision. And then there were these swirls of yellow just coming around, um, very curved. And as there were some little melodic sequences that happened in there, and as they changed and twisted, um, the colors changed from. Green to dark orange to darker green to red, and then it ended in a B flat chord, which is um, pink.
0: Okay, now um, we've got to get a little bit technical here. I think uh, you're, all of these colors, I can't, I can't make those connections at all. Mm-hmm. But I'm a musician, and I, I know what pitch is. Pitch is, you know, what's the note? A B C D E sharps, flats, what have you. Are you responding, do you think, to the pitch? You mentioned the piano sounds a certain way. What are you reacting to when you clue in, when you really zoom in on a color? Is it
2: pitch? Well, I think it's both the pitch and also the timbre. I know if I play an A on a piano, there's the green piano color, but there's also the red A color. So you kind of get not a mix of green and red. It's just a color that is both green and red.
0: Now pitch and color and timbre, I'm speaking to you right now. Does my voice have a color?
2: It does. It's kind of a fuzzy maroon color.
0: Fuzzy maroon. I am delighted. I just can't even tell you how to fuzzy. I've never Um, fuzzy maroon. Uh, and, And your voice is purple. You say when you sing, is your voice different when you speak?
2: It is also purple when I speak.
0: You're a consistent purple through and through. Have you ever been anything other than purple when you speak?
2: Well, sometimes when I'm sick or I'm really stressed, I'll notice my voice will start to change color, Um, so I I usually turn a dark blue when I'm getting a cold or if I'm going to be sick.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, this synesthesia that you've been learning about over the years, you've gotten some professional, uh, somebody talking to you about it from a professional standpoint. Uh, Do you understand it? Do you feel like you know what's going on inside your brain? Can can you talk like a a neurologist would about what's happening with the nerves?
2: Uh, Well, the best way that I can explain it is that you have your five senses, and they all have a sensory pathway in your brain, or a couple sensory pathways in your brain. So you have one for sound, you have one for sight, and usually they don't cross or interfere with each other at all. But... um, I guess when my brain was growing and developing, they never, um, they, they kind of stayed together, and, and so they're, they're crossed, the sensory pathways are crossed, and therefore they just kind of interfere with each other, and I see sound and hear color.
0: So uh, one type of sensation, a, 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 a an auditory sensation, an aural sensation, can somehow trigger In your brain, it registers as something that the rest of us would see as color.
2: Yeah. So it would be like one of the sensory pathways is stimulated, but because they're crossed with another one, that sense is also stimulated.
0: Yeah. Are you bombarded by this all the time? I just have to think about sensory overload, the idea that no matter whether you're hearing human voices or maybe the, the pitch of a, a squeal of the brakes of a car, or maybe there's a jackhammer in the distance and it has a certain <laughs> pitch or timbre, or a, going to a concert, being hearing a symphony orchestra. I just wonder about sensory overload.
2: Well, sensory overload is, is definitely something that I've dealt with quite a bit, but it usually happens when uh, one or more of those things that you mentioned come together. Um, so like if there was a jackhammer... And someone was squealing their brakes, and also someone was was talking to me. I'm like that—that's a lot of of different noises with very distinct colors. And sometimes, if it's a lot, um, my brain doesn't know how to process all of it. I know we're walking into an arcade, ooh, there's so many lights and so many sounds from all the games. That's straight highway to sensory overload right there. <laughs>
0: I want to play a little bit of music for you that is orchestral, in fact. This is an excerpt, I believe, from Swan Lake. And let's listen. Ooh, I like Swan Lake. And I hope we don't give you any sensory overload here. <laughs> I think we'd better leave it right there because then there's going to be too much to comment on. Uh, you're a musician. You listen to music. You just said that you like Swan Lake. What was, what were you experiencing between the two senses of your hearing and, and color, the sense of
1: color?
2: Uh, when I listened to that, I heard a lot of orange and lots of very bright colors. Um, I've always been a fan of cello melodies, so it was great to hear that.
0: And then eventually you get the higher strings coming in. They're also strings. Mm-hmm. So are they going to have a different color from your lower strings?
2: Um, they, They'll have a little bit different. They have a, a different timbre, even though they're playing the same notes. So the violin there were a little lighter. They were more yellow than the orange cello counterpart.
0: Now, you've used the word timbre a couple of times in our conversation now already, and that's not a, a word that a lot of people use unless you happen to be a musician or deep into music. That is probably the most difficult term I've ever encountered, even as a musician, to try to define it. Help us out with your understanding of what timbre is.
2: Well, I've explained it to a few of my younger violin students as how the sound sounds. Um, they, they seem to, to kind of grasp that. So if you're listening to a sound, it um, sometimes it can be a really loud sound sometimes it can sound kind of angry it can sound kind of um, you know soft and gentle so there's all these different ways that the sound can sound
0: some certain way that the sound has its own unique quality that differentiates say an A played on a, an A flat played on the violin from an A flat played on the trumpet from an A flat played on a, what have you a, a guitar yeah. the, the quality yeah, timbre is just, it's, it's, it's so elusive to me and the senses, our experience of the senses is kind of elusive too. I mean, have you given much reflection, not only to the fact that you perceive music with these colors, but that we don't necessarily even see colors the same way there's no way for you and I to agree what what that what I'm experiencing as green is what you are as experiencing as green and that kind of can leave you feeling a little lonely if you if you think about that too long
2: absolutely is it isolating yeah, um, i i guess it has the, the possibility it could be isolating if you view it from a certain way but i think it can also be very empowering because no one else has the exact same experiences of the world that you do that's something that just you get to have and i think it's really cool that we can all have these different experiences and and that they can be you know special just for you
0: let's talk about your work composing music because you do have an album out and i'm wondering to what extent you are able to sort of corral the music as music and produce music to imagine the music, to write down the notes, to, to record it, are, are you able to do that without having the colors play a role in the whole process? Or do you actually lean on that as though those colors are going to be important to your composition?
2: I definitely use synesthesia a lot in my music. Um, when I was working on my, my album, which is actually titled Synesthesia, so that's kind of a dead giveaway, I, I used it in, in the formation of that. But as I was doing the the mixing and adding in instruments, I could listen back and um, I could hear like, oh, there's a lot of green and blue, but I'm missing some yellow. And then I could know to go back and add a a yellow sound or a yellow-ish melody just to make sure that all the colors are balanced. Because when all the colors are balanced, so is the sound.
0: I want to play the game again. It's kind of name that tune thing. Here's a tune that I've heard a lot in my home as of late. And to be absolutely honest, this is a little bit jackhammerish to me. <laughs> enough, enough already. It's just, ben, please, turn it off. <laughs> I can't take too much of that because I, I get it at home all the time. Super Mario, of course. Uh, what's your experience of that electronically generated sound?
2: Well, before when we were playing Swan Lake and the piano music, uh, the, the colors were very swirly. They, they had a, a distinct background and they were moving. And um, for that song, the theme song, um, it, it's very angular and sharp. Like the colors go away really fast. They're kind of like a, a quick little flash and, and then they disappear.
0: And that's not just with the staccato nature of that because you hear these notes and they're little, little bursts of sound.
2: I think it, it, it might be because there's it, it's a burst of sound, so um, there's no sound that comes after a staccato note. There's just silence.
0: So, but 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 definitely with color, with each of those sounds, different colors, kind of like fireworks going off.
2: It is like fireworks.
0: Yeah. Well, before we uh, say goodbye to you, Annie, I would like to go to this piece called "Sleep to Dream." And I want you to set it up for us because there's a there's this great story about how you came up with this piece of music. It, it does have to do, I think, with a clock and you're trying to sleep. What, what happened?
2: <laughs> it does. So in my room, I have a clock that hangs on my wall. It's, it's an analog clock. And you know how those analog clocks can be. They just go tick and I just saw red, red, red and that was, uh, that was the sound that the tick of the clock was making and it was so loud and so sharp and you know, at night it's so quiet that it made it almost impossible to sleep because that red was all I could see and all I could hear so I was like, man, it'd be really great if I could get to sleep and um, I was remembering that the complimentary color of red was green so I thought it'd be cool to kind of make a song that Was kind of a lullaby that would chase off the spread of the clock with, um, you know, counteract it with its other color, green. And so I made Sleep to Dream as a green song inspired by the red of the clock.
0: Now, uh, is this instrumental? Is this vocal?
2: It is mostly instrumental, and there's some multi layered vocals that I put in there. Well, no, let, so.
0: let's let's give a listen to it, and because this is your music, uh, we're, we're going to have a little bit more extended experience here. We're going to we we'll listen to a fair amount of it, and uh, and then come back to you. All right. <laughs> So, Annie, I have to ask you something. As I was enjoying that, I heard harmony. And this is going to get just a little bit wonky. I'm going to push the edges. I know people can understand this. But if you're playing two notes side by side on the piano, there's a certain frequency thing going on there. And that Mm -hmm. note is going to be on pitch or maybe it's a little out of tune but you could slide between those pitches and there's such a range. I'm just wondering if there's like a breaking point for certain colors. I'm wondering if you could actually align the colors you perceive with specific frequencies.
2: You know, I've never tried to do that. I know, um, I've kind of noticed certain patterns like usually an A is red, a a B is is pink. Um, F is usually orange, but sometimes in, in certain contexts, those colors can change. And uh, like in Sleep to Dream that you just heard, um, the scale for the first half of the song, the colors are mostly greens. There's some purples in there, um, some pink, some blue. I actually did an animation that um, shows you exactly what it is that I see. Um, you can probably find it somewhere on my website. But um, that would be different than the normal colors that I would see if you just played the notes on the piano. So I think in that sense, they would be different. I don't think I could put them all, like line up a color to a certain note.
0: Singer and composer Annie Dickinson. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.